I start with just a note. This is Paul presents reasons why he ministers as he does. In the Schofield Bible, you'll see the note at the head of the chapter says, the vindication of Paul's apostleship, and has some cross-references there. But let's just read the first two verses together. Now, I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent and bold toward you, but I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Now, the translation uses a lot of words. The, Paul wrote a lot of words here to get across a thought that he is perceived to be different when he's with them than he is in his letters. His last letter he wrote to them, he was very bold. He was very strong. He was a very strong corrective to some misbehavior in the churches in Corinth. And now he's saying, I myself, Paul, you might remember that we noticed just in the last two chapters that he switched from saying we to the first person singular, I myself, Paul. He's, he's now being more personal and more direct and less official, if you will, and more uh, pleading with him one-on-one. -on -one. I myself beseech you. Beseech. You notice, if you've got my notes under that, the word beseech means has to do with by meekness and gentleness. I beseech that I may not be bold when I am present. I'm beseeching here from a distance so that when I get there, we can be sweet among you. We can be kind. I'm bold being absent. Being absent, I'm bold. I beseech so that I don't have to be bold when I'm present with you. He says, I don't want to yell at you when I'm there. I want to have good fellowship with you when I'm there. And then he says that I may not be bold when I am present with you, present with that confidence. I think to be bold against some. There were still some in the church in Corinth that he, he needed to be strong with. And so those some, he says, which think of us, referring to himself and his co-workers, as if we walked according to the flesh. He says there's some there that are like those that criticized the Lord Jesus. They said, John the Baptist came to you neither eating nor drinking, and you said, He's a crazy man, and then Jesus came eating and drinking, and he said, look, he's a wine-bibber and a glutton. And he says, you can't be satisfied. Some, some among you, some think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. The very next verse, we'll go on and, and look at it here. Verse 3, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. And why does he say that? He just says, as though we walked according to the flesh. But then he says, we do walk in the flesh. Folks, it's a reality of this lifetime. We are born, first of all, from mom and dad, and we have their nature, and it's a flesh nature. All we've got to walk around in is this body, this physical flesh that we have. And that's what the word flesh means. It means meat. Well, we, the, uh, the Greek word is carne like chili con carne, you know, chili with, with meat in it. It's not just chili with beans, it's chili with meat. We walk 
in the flesh. Why? Because I can't just say, Spirit, head over there, I'll stay here with my body. We can't do that. They can do it on TV, but we can't do that. The body is where you do your doing. We walk in the flesh. But then he switches to the spiritual meaning of the word flesh in the second part of verse 3. We do not war after the flesh. The way we fight our warfare is not, I'm going to punch you in the snoot. It's not after the flesh. It's a spiritual warfare. Verse 4 explains that in parenthesis. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that's that same word for flesh, not in the flesh, not carnal, not our weapons aren't this old body, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. I think when Paul writes that to people that might have been instructed in the Old Testament, they're going to go back in their minds to when Joshua came up to the battle of Jericho. And after they marched around the walls of Jericho once for six days, and on the seventh day they marched around it seven times, and on the seventh time they blew the trumpets, and without any effort on the part of the army of God, the walls fell down. There was the pulling down of the stronghold, not by Joshua and his army, but by God himself, mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The other night, Jesse remarked about the smiley face at the end of verses like this one. There's a winking smiley face there in our modern way of looking at emoticons, but it's just a semicolon closing the parenthesis, but, but I still think it's cute. Mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Anyway, verse 5, going on with the idea we don't war off the, after the flesh. Verse 5 says, casting... But I don't want to go on to verse 5 just yet. Just give me a second. There's a cross-reference in my notes that we should look at. We live our lives in this old flesh. We don't have anything else to live in. If you'd like to go with me over to Galatians chapter 2, page 1243. It's only a few pages to the right now. It's right after 2 Corinthians, and we're nearly out of 2 Corinthians. In Galatians 2.20, Paul wrote, to the Galatian people, not anywhere near Corinth, I am crucified with Christ. Wonderful truth. When God looked at Jesus on the cross, all the believers down through the ages after that, he looked at and said, that, that Saul of Tarsus, he's a crook right now, but he's going to be a believer. And I see him crucified right there with Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Paul said it, I could say it, I'm crucified with Christ. <clears throat> that takes care of my death penalty. The next three words, nevertheless, I live. I'm the one still pumping air, still pushing blood through my circulatory system. I'm still alive physically. I'm dead as far as God's concerned relative to sin, but I live, and then he says, not I but Christ lives in me. You might recall in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we talked about who deserves to live. Christ died for all, that they that live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him that loved him and died for them. I live, but it's not I, Paul says. Christ lives in me. He died and he didn't deserve to die. I'm still alive physically, and he deserves this life, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live 
by the faith, according to the faith, I'm going to say, of the Son of God. I'm giving this right to his control as best I can. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I'm, I'm living in the flesh. I'm living in the flesh, but it's for the life of Christ to be lived out. So, yes, we live in the flesh. We walk in the flesh, but we don't war after the flesh. Our warfare is spiritual, not carnal, verse 4 in chapter 10. Not carnal, but spiritual. Mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. I'm going to turn the page in my notes. And then the spiritual warfare is described in the next two verses. Here we are in verse 5. Casting down imaginations. We're still on page 1237 in the Schofield Bible. Casting down imaginations. What the first foe we've got are imaginations. And I, I put it in the notes. I thought it was an interesting work, word. The Greek word is logismos. Logismos. We get our word logic from it. Logismos, logismos literally means computations, like the calculator in your phone. We used to have separate calculators, but now we've all got phones, so we don't need separate calculators. But computations or reasonings, those are one of the foes. Those are one of the enemies to the way we battle spiritually, casting down imaginations. There are people out there calculating against the truth of our spiritual warfare. Paul said, some of you people, your, your imaginations, your calculations are against us. And at this point, I want to read the rest of the verse, just, just verses 5 and 6, and then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians for a minute. Casting down, first of all, imaginations, and then we'll talk about every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And having a readiness, having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now, referring back to that imaginations and the, these logismas, these computations or reasonings, let's look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. It's page 1212 if you need the page number. 1 Corinthians in most Bibles comes right before 2 Corinthians. I try to be helpful when I can. <laughs> page 1212 if you're using one of the Bibles from the pew. The heading in this electronic Bible I'm using says, Christ, the wisdom and the power of God. But let's just read this significant passage here and see if you can't hear what Paul is getting at when he talks about the spiritual wisdom versus the wisdom of man's imaginations and man's calculations or computations. He says, for the preaching of the cross, that's his message, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. You imagine, you go up to a lost person and say, have you heard about this great religious teacher? From He was Jewish, he lived 2,000 years ago, and after teaching for three years, they grabbed him, arrested him, tried him illegally, and put him on a cross and executed him like a common criminal. Have you heard about that? You should trust him. To the lost, that doesn't sound right. We cut it off before we got to the point of the story. He rose from the dead to prove what he did was done. But the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Some people make fun of us for teaching what we, they call easy believism. 
But you ever think about the elements of the story that we believe who are believers? They are foolishness. They just happen to be true. It's a good thing to know. Unto us which are saved, the preaching of the cross is the power of God. That's what Romans says. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 19, he says, It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. I did not look up where that's written, but uh, it's good to know. That was him using the Old Testament again. He then starts asking rhetorical questions. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe, the one that can read and write? Where's the disputer of this world, the man trained in rhetoric, the debate captain, the great teacher of North Africa, Augustine, was trained in rhetoric. He would be called a disputer of this world. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Remember in Athens, Paul was asked to come and speak to the philosophers on their meeting place on Mars Hill, and they didn't like the idea of the resurrection. After that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. They couldn't find him out by just these computations, these reasonings. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Aren't you glad you don't have to get a degree in understanding God thoroughly before you can be saved? The Jews require a sign. You remember them demanding of Jesus, show us a sign so we have some reason to believe you are who you say you are. He said there's no sign going to be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonas. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, and he's going to get up as Jonas got up. The resurrection is the sign for the Jews. The Greeks seek after wisdom. Oh, they're trying to figure it out. He says we're not doing either of those things. We preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block. The Jews that did believe the Bible believed that Jesus, or the Messiah rather, would come and throw out the oppressors. First throw out the Babylonians, throw out the Romans, put us on top of the heap again. Keep your promise to King David and put his son on the throne of the kingdom. Unto the Jews a stumbling block. Jesus Christ crucified for the Jews was something they stumbled over. And to the Greeks, it's just a bunch of foolishness. Eh? So many different times in front of judges or in front of Pilate, this story was told, and they said, I don't care anything about that. That's your religious stuff. Foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, the foolishness of God, this story of the cross, is wiser than men. And guess what? The weakness of God, if there is such a thing, is stronger than men. There is no weakness of God except that he uses us to tell the story. And then he says to the Corinthians, who are messed up, but they're believers, you see your calling, brethren, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. He says around you, the, ones, the believers there, they're not the rulers of the synagogue, although one of the rulers of the synagogue was a believer that he got kicked out. They're not the political leaders. They're not the wise men after the flesh. They're not the mighty. 
they're not the noble. Verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. No matter who you are, no matter what you are, no matter how poorly you think of yourself, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. We have the message of the cross and God's power. And with God's power and the message of the cross, you can win any lost person to the Lord that will just believe. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. There is this, among you a slave or many slaves, and they're under their master's hand, and they're weak compared to the power and authority he has over them. And yet the message of the cross wins the master as it does the slave. The base things of the world and things which are despised, the slaves, the criminals, the women of ill repute, if we can say it that way, the base things, the, the dirty, rotten, bottom-of-the-barrel things, and things which are despised has God chosen, and things which are not. If you're just nothing, he says, he never met a bigger nothing than me. God's chosen that kind of person to bring to naught things that are. Now, if you aren't one of those base things, be glad it doesn't say not any. It just says not many noble, not many wise are called. So there's room at the cross for you too. But nobody should feel that they can't find room there for themselves because of their poor status. Verse 29 says that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's what Ephesians 2.8 says, isn't it? 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. You don't deserve it. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. You don't get it out of yourselves, this salvation. It's not of works. Why? Lest any man should boast. God does our salvation. All we can do is believe in the one that died on the cross. Believe the message of the cross. Verse 30 and 31, he finishes up this chapter by saying, of him, of God, are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us because we believed in Jesus? God does this. He's made our wisdom and our righteousness, not our personal righteousness, but the wisdom of God and the righteousness of God and the sanctification of God and the redemption of God. Jesus is all of that for us. He is made unto us those things so that verse 31 says that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And we just keep going to the next page in the, the scroll here. Chapter 2, verse 1, still continuing in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, when I first visited Corinth, came not with excellency of speech. I'm a university graduate. I studied at the feet of Gamaliel. I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and I came to tell you Jesus loves you and died on the cross for you. I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom. I didn't tell you the whole story of Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. I just came to you to tell you the testimony of God. Verse 2, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ, and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. 
All I'm going to talk about is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. It is the gospel message, the words of Jesus Christ and him crucified, that is the power of God unto salvation. Verse 5, the point of it all, the reason I did it that way was that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What a rich passage to go along with the idea that we've got enemies to our message, and one of them is imaginations. We need to cast down imaginations. These calculations, the things that we figure out for ourselves, that's not where the power of the gospel message is. We need to be rid of that and do as Paul did to determine to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I will take you to the Old Testament for a moment. Page 968, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, because Paul said it was by God's Spirit that he had the power to share the gospel and win people to the Lord. And in Zechariah 4, 6, there's a verse I've always wanted to read out loud, so I'm going to. He answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. I read that because I really wanted to say Zerubbabel in public. But no, the word of the Lord to this prophet Zechariah that he spoke to Zerubbabel, one of the leaders of Israel in his day, he said, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit, saith the Lord. There was an enemy coming against Israel. Zerubbabel wanted to hire an army. God said, no, just trust me. Before Zerubbabel, enemy, you'll become a flat place, a plain. Zechariah says, it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. If we want to have successful spiritual warfare, we better do it in the power of God. We'll look at page 1312 in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll read a few verses here. First Peter chapter 1, Paul wasn't the only one that talked about this spiritual warfare. Peter refers back to the prophets in verse 10. The prophets, they're trying to sort out salvation. The ones that we re read from and quote from the Old Testament. And he says, these prophets were searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. God's Holy Spirit speaking to and through the mouths and the writings of the Old Testament prophets, he was testifying, the Spirit was testifying through all those prophets, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. But the prophets themselves couldn't sort that out. They were searching, what? What manner of time? When is it? Verse 12, Peter goes on and says, To whom, those prophets, it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. 
And then he, there's a break there that doesn't need to be there. He says in verse 13, wherefore, they didn't get it, but they wrote it down. They spoke it. We've got their words. Wherefore, because of that, do this. And it's an interesting phrase. Gird up the loins of your mind. You've perhaps seen illustrations what kind of clothing was worn in those days when the Lord had lived and so on. They'd taken the Greek or the Roman style to some extent. The men and women alike wore long clothing, not pants, just long clothing. And if they needed to run, if they needed to do an athletic event or an exercise, they had to reach down and grab up that skirt kind of a thing and tie it up around their waist. They had to gird up the loins. They had to tie it up to get it out of the way. Get your get in money, running gear is what I would say, our modern acronym, get in running gear. But this doesn't say the loins of your feet. This says gird up the loins of your mind. Get your mind ready to run. There's some work involved here. We're going to have a need to exercise your mind. And you need to be sober. Don't be flippant. Don't be making bad jokes. Be sober. Be serious-minded. Especially don't be drunk, but be serious-minded. And, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The reason to get this right is because Jesus is coming back and we get to be with him. That's our great expectation. That's what we're looking forward to, our certain hope. And because of that, get your mind in running gear. There's work to do. Well, all of that was about the foe we call imaginations. Paul says, casting down imaginations, back on page 1237 again. Casting down, throw it down. And what else? Besides imaginations, every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. There's important things and people and movements and all, but they're against God. I could start naming some, but I'd get political trouble if I do. But you think about it. In our culture here in America today, what kind of stuff, what kind of high things are exalting themselves against the knowledge of God? Governors and legislators and courts that are saying God was wrong, marriage is whatever people want it to be, dogs and cats and boys and boys and girls and girls and three and fours. God was wrong. That's a high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. The governor of Ohio vetoed a bill that had been passed in the legislature to prevent mutilation of children that said, eh, maybe I'm a girl instead of a boy. The legislature had passed the law and the governor vetoed it. That's a high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. One specific example. Unless you think I'm getting political, that governor was a Republican. I don't know what in the world he was thinking. But anyway, the first thing on the list of the six or seven things that God hates is a proud look. Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Behind most of this kind of foolishness, there's a lot of pride. Here's Proverbs 6, 
starting in verse 16. It's, it's page 676, I think. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. Now sometimes when you read it in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you know you're reading the Jewish law, which was very specifically for the Jews. And you say, well, maybe I, I realize it says this, but it's, it's not written to me, and unless it's repeated in the New Testament, you don't take it. But this is not saying, here's the law for Israel. This says these six things does the Lord hate. Seven are an abomination unto him. There's no uh, exemption from, well, God hates it when the Jews do it, but he don't hate it when I do it. These are really things that God finds abominable. A proud look. The first thing, the high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. A proud look. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. When I read that, I can't get away from the image of the abortion clinic. A heart that devises wicked imaginations. And I'm sorry, I can't read that without thinking about those that publish pornography, whether it's in magazines or movies or on the Internet. A heart that devises wicked imaginations. I'm going to fix the way you think so that you're messed up. That's a heart that devises wicked imaginations. Feet that be swift in running to mischief. God hates your feet if you're in a hurry to mess somebody up. You're driving down the road and you see somebody that wants in and instead of holding back to let them in, you accelerate to show off that you got a better place in line. I'm sorry, that's feet that are swift in running to mischief. It's a very mild example of it, but we all do that sometimes because we're just more important than they are. A false witness that speaketh lies... That was in there twice, wasn't it? A lying tongue and a false witness that speaketh lies. First of all, don't lie. Second of all, don't lie in a way that will hurt somebody else as a witness. And he that soweth discord among the brethren. That would be the most extreme kind of that same thing. Sowing discord among the brethren. The lying tongue, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. That's all three on the same boom, boom, the same drum, I think. But there you go. So we go back here to where we were. The things that God hates because they were high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And the next phrase in this wonderful verse says... We're not quite to the next phrase yet in the notes. Against the knowledge of God in the notes. And I ask myself a question. Is Paul writing this about the world around Corinth? Or about the Corinthians? Is he writing this about us who will read this in the future? Now, is he writing this about me? Am I, by my life, actually going against the knowledge of God? You think about what you do and how it affects the ministry of God, because I do think that's a strong reason in the checking of the reasons for rewarding a believer. How would you do to advance the gospel presentation? Are you 
in your life, in your habits, in what you allow, are you going against the knowledge of God? What are our methods? They're listed at the same verse, verse 10. Casting down. Casting down. Throw them down like the walls, like the fortresses, like the bunkers that they came up against on D-Day. Knock them down. Blow them up. The people, the Israeli Defense Force is having to destroy miles and miles and miles of military tunnels underneath Gaza's hospitals and schools. Strange. Casting down, and then it says, and bringing into captivity. We've got to capture some of these enemies. We've got to capture them. After, or actually during the Civil War, in one of the battles, there was an old Confederate farm boy that had his rifle, and he came back from the woods leading a prisoner. He got himself a Yankee prisoner, brought him back into the Confederate camp. And they said, how'd you get him? He says, well, man, the woods are full of them. You could have some if you wanted to. Bringing into captivity every thought. Your thought life is full of things that need to be brought into captivity. Is there an excuse here? So, well, I can't help the things that come up in front of my... Well, you don't have to help them. You just have to capture them. Every thought to the obedience of Christ. In my notes it says, but, 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 but I can't do that. Every thought, what do you expect of me? What it says in the Bible. Every thought to the obedience of Christ. If God commands it, it can be done. It should be done. It must be done. Control your thought life. In verse 6, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. You get your mind straight. You get your mind right. And then start behaving right for God. Paul believed in and practiced church disobedience, church, church discipline, excuse me. Revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. When you have properly responded to the corrections of the letter I wrote before and now this letter that has a few corrections in it, when your obedience is fulfilled, then get on the stick and revenge all disobedience. Verse 7 says, Do we look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ, let him think this again. Let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ, even so are we Christ. You just looking at what I look like, old bald man, losing my eyesight? You judging after the outward appearance? If you're Christ's, we're Christ's too. Yes, we are. I want to skip to verses 10 and 11 as he picks this up. That I may not seem as if I would terrify you with letters, for his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. He says all he knows is Christ Jesus and him crucified. And then verses 8 and 9, I thought fit better in this order. Though I should boast somewhat more of our authority. He says, I've got some authority. The Lord has given us for edification, to build up, not for your destruction. I should not be ashamed. He says, look, I had to write that letter to you. I have to write this letter to you, but it's to build you up. It's not to tear you down. It's not to throw you down. 
but to let you know you've got to throw down the enemies. You've got to throw down the enemies that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. I don't want to terrify you. Now skip down to verse 12. We dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. They, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Stop looking at other people. Don't say, well, I could do that better than he does. Probably you could. woman came to Moody one time after he'd preached in England for Spurgeon, and she said, Mr. Moody, you destroy the king's English. And he said, Madam, do you present the gospel message? He said, well, no, I do not. He says, I like the way I do it better than the way you don't. We dare not make ourselves of the number that of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. They measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Do you want Paul to call you stupid? Just keep on comparing yourselves. And then we talk about the extent of Paul's ministry. How far did he go? The next verses will tell us about this. He is confident only in as far as he himself has gone which did include them in Corinth. He says in verse 13, we will not boast of things without our measure, outside of what we've gotten to, but according to the measure of the rule which God has distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. We stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reach not unto you. We are come as far as to you in the preaching of the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things outside our measure, without our measure, that is, of other men's labors. I'm not talking to you about what Peter's doing or what John's doing. But having hope, when your faith is increased, we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly. He says, you guys are my people. And I'm not telling you you do what I did. You just get on with getting yourselves right, and when you increase, it'll be great for me too. And then he said this, I've gotten as far as you, but I'm going to go further, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand. Paul says, I just want to go where nobody's been before. And I want you to do that too. There's a, I don't have time to tell the whole story, but the method of what used to be called New Tribes Mission, now called Ethnos 360, their method is to win a people to the Lord by teaching them the gospel story from Genesis right through to the cross and the resurrection. And when they're saved, then continuing to teach them until they figure out there's another group beyond that hill that doesn't know us and we need to go to them. And the people themselves become the new missionaries to the next, the next tribe and the next tribe and the next tribe. And it works amazingly well. To preach the gospel in the regions beyond you I don't know if you've ever thought about how far Paul went with his gospel preaching. Romans 15, starting in verse 17, he says, I have therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient both by word and deed through mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem... That's where I started. 
and round about unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. If you can imagine briefly in your mind the map of the Mediterranean Sea, Illyricum is all the way up what we would call Albania and into that area on the west side of the Grecian Peninsula. He'd gotten there. He eventually went to Rome as well. We scroll down to... uh, Well, I'm going to keep reading. Yea, I have strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and that it have not heard shall understand. And look at verse 24 in the same chapter. Where, whensoever I take my journey into Spain... I will come to you, for I trust to see you on my journey and be brought on my way thitherward by you, if first I may be somewhat filled with your company. In the very last verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says this, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. Those verses speak well for themselves. I hope you got the point if you're listening and have never understood the gospel. Paul said his only message was not, let me be the great college professor. His only message was Christ Jesus and him crucified. And he said he was crucified with Christ. When God looks at any of us and our sins, he looks all the way back to the cross and he sees Jesus Christ already died for them. And he offers salvation to anyone who do more, no more than put their faith in the one who died for them and rose again. Father in heaven, thank you for your word this morning that we've studied together. We pray that it'll encourage us and embolden us to do as Paul said to do, to bring our thoughts, our imaginations into the obedience of Christ. Every thought. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll have church. I'm a little over, but not too much. You can run to the restroom if you